Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. For those of you joining us live here on the webinar, thank you for joining us. This is our second quarter webinar that we are discussing just clinical trials and navigating those. And I'm actually joined today with Shahina Singh and with Kelly Goddard, and they're from uh, two respective doctor's clinics. They were recommended by two different uveal melanoma oncologists. Dr. Shahina Singh works with, uh, sorry, is it nurse? You're a nurse. Yes, they're both nurses, I believe. Um, And they work with Dr., um, she works with Dr. Carvajal in, is it Columbia now? Yes, he works in Columbia now. And then um, Kelly Goddard works with uh, Meredith McKean in Tennessee Oncology, if I'm remembering correctly. So I'm going to introduce them in just a couple of minutes, and that should um, get us started. But let me just one, run through a couple of brief announcements, just in case you've missed things via email or social media. Um, first up is keep an eye out this week for registration for the I Believe event. Remember, that's taking place in Seattle in person this year, as well as hybrid, so you can register for free. And as soon as we have the hotel ring link for registration, that will um, also become available. So keep an eye out, literally, <laughs> uh, for the registration for I Believe. Next up this weekend is eye patch days. So if you don't have an eye patch, feel free to find one at the store, grab one from our store on the website, um, just pay shipping and just start uh, patching or preparing your family to patch with us on May 19th, 20th, and 21st. Um, on any of those days. If you'd like to participate in the contest, be sure to decorate, have your kids get decorating, and um, make sure to submit those photos to contact at acureinsight.org, or you can tag us on social media in a public post. If you have any questions, please feel free to message me directly on social media, and I will be happy to um, just answer any questions there. But iPatch Days is a great way to get family and community involved, and just to um, wear an iPatch for the day, just to get people talking about ocular melanoma. Kind of like wear black for melanoma, it's wear an eye patch for ocular melanoma. Um, This weekend, we also have the first two 5Ks of the year. These are taking place in Durham, North Carolina, as well as Washington, D.C. area. If you're not registered and you'd like to participate and get over to those areas, please register at lookingforacure.org, or you can um, reach out directly for another sign-up link. Um, You can also register to walk with us virtually if you're unable to attend in person. Please make sure you're getting your teams involved, your communities, your family, your friends. Um, And we do have a top teams contest at each of the events. So the team with the most participants registered will uh, be eligible for a prize as well as first place, second place runners and walkers, all of that. So we're super excited for this weekend. This is going to kick off a really busy season for us. So stay tuned and get involved to be a part of this with us. All right. Uh, that's all I've got as far as announcements go. So Kelly and um, Shahinas, thank you for joining us. Just pulling up your bios really fast. I guess I already said where you're from, but um, I'll just give a little bit more of a background for people if they would like. So just got to pull it up. Here we go. Um, so Kelly Goddard is a new patient referral nurse coordinator at Sarah Cannon Research Institute. She's been an RN for 12 years, and she's spent eight years in oncology and research. She holds a BA in sociology with a minor in criminal justice from the University of Tennessee. Um, Her other nursing experience includes emergency and operation departments, and she is passionate about patient care and finding solutions to serve the patient. In her free time, she enjoys uh, traveling with her husband. And uh, Shahina Singh is an oncology nurse practitioner at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. She specializes in the treatment of rare cancers such as uveal melanoma and sarcoma. She began her career in 2011 as a research study assistant at Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Center. And after five years as an RSA, she returned to school to complete a bachelor and master's of science in nursing at Columbia University. She joined the melanoma and sarcoma team at uh, Columbia University Irving Medical Center in 2016, and she is passionate about helping patients navigate the healthcare system and increasing enrollment on clinical trials. So we're super excited to have you guys both here today. 
Um, like I said, this is a really hot topic in uveal melanoma. We have patients who have a lot of misconceptions around clinical trials and patients who are kind of thrust into this world without a whole lot of guidance, um, whether it's because their oncologist just doesn't have the resources or because they're brand new to this diagnosis and then they're also being thrust into the clinical trial world. So that said, um, Shahinas, I know you had said you had some slides to kind of just walk us through some basics around clinical trials and um, selecting clinical trials. So I'm gonna go ahead and turn it over to you if you wanna just kind of get us started there. Yeah, sure. Uh, let me see if I can share my screen. Oh, wait, I cannot. Shoot. Hmm. Well, let me see if I can fix that. I should have fixed that earlier. Let's see, sharing screen options. Here we go. All right, try again. Wonderful. Okay, it looks like it works. So as previously mentioned, my name is Shahinas. I am a nurse practitioner at Columbia University. Um, Dr. Carvajal is no longer with us. He's now at Northwell um, as of January this year, but we're still super close. I started with him in 2011 uh, before my nursing career. And so I believe he was on this podcast before as well, just like sharing um, information. And so I'm going to share more of the clinical trials portion of it. I know he shared a lot about the disease and um, surveillance versus um, treatment for ocular melanoma. And so um, I, I do wanna make this like an open format. So if you have any questions, I'm, I'm happy to answer them as I'm sharing, but just some background on, on clinical trials. And so, you know, you get this new diagnosis and you're wondering, okay, what do I do? Do I do enucleation? Do I do uh, plaque brachytherapy? Do I do a clinical trial? And so there's so many different options that are literally being thrusted at you. So just an overview on what studies are. And so it's research studies for new medical treatments to basically prove that they are effective and safe compared to what the standard is. All patients are required to fill out or sign rather a informed consent form to join a clinical trial. And this is basically background on what the treatment is, what the schedule of assessments are, what the side effects, it also includes cost. And so this is literally the most important form when it comes to joining on a clinical trial. I'm a research nurse practitioner, so I'm on the other side and usually mostly primarily for patients that have metastatic ocular melanoma. And so I always recommend you take this form home and review it before you sign it. There is so much wealth of knowledge in this and I never want anything to be a surprise. So I want patients to know what they're signing, what, what's involved, how much travel you have to do to the cancer center. And so I just wanted to like highlight that point because sometimes when you get like a 25 page document, you're like, do I actually have to read this? Yes, you do. It is super important and it's helpful for you as well as your family. Um, and then there are different kinds of trials there. So there's interventional studies where you're actually receiving a specific intervention, and that is to, ter to, to determine if it's safe, effective, and better than the standard of care, or there's observational clinical trials. And that's really just to assess health outcomes in a group of participants. And so I stole this from you guys because I feel like it's so helpful to be able to give you just a clear screenshot of, okay, what are the different phases in studies? So you may go to your oncologist or, and they'll say, okay, we have a phase two study that's available for you. What does that even mean? And so basically um, a drug or um, a researcher will take an idea, work on it in a lab, and if it's shown effective, then they'll develop a protocol. And then from the protocol, they'll then um, uh, present it to the FDA and the um, Institutional Review Board, the IRB, to see if we can actually test it in patients. So phase one is the very first phase of uh, human clinical trials, and they're usually much smaller. For ocular melanoma, these, um, these trials are usually even very small because of just how rare the disease is. And so usually for phase one studies, it's saying, okay, is this even safe to give to people? Do we know the dose that's, um, that patients should receive? And so usually with phase one studies, there are more research tests um, included in the studies because we're just finding out how is this drug interacting with your body? How is your, your body interacting with the drug? And so there's a lot more what we call um, 
pharmacokinetic tests, PK tests, research blood tests that are involved in phase one studies. Phase two is how effective is this treatment? So we know the dose, we know that it's safe, but okay, and how effective is it? So it usually opens up to um, more patients. And also we're discovering as we're giving it to more patients, are there any new safety things and new safety concerns that are coming up? And then phase three is comparing that particular uh, medication or that intervention to the standard of care. Of course, in uveal melanoma, that's a little bit harder because really right now for metastatic setting, there is really only one standard of care option that's out there. Um, and so it's comparing it to what's out there. Sometimes that could be a placebo. And so we can chat about that a little bit later. Um, but basically phase three are is a larger um, study uh, meeting with participants because we're now, um, it's right around that registration time, meaning we're planning on presenting this data to the FDA. And so usually it opens up to uh, more patients. And then phase four is after it's been approved by the FDA, and now you're offering it to the general population for uveal ocular melanoma. And it's, um, are there any new uh, findings that have come up? Um, does it work for all patients in that demographic? And so um, generally on average, that process from lab to phase three, usually for approval rather, usually is nine years. However, um, if there is a phase one study that is promising, there is a way to expedite that. And I have seen that um, in, in many drugs, not just for ocular melanoma. And so the next question is, all right, so I know what a clinical trial is. I know what the phase is. How do I find one? How do I know if it's right for me? So the first thing I would emphasize is, um, Clinicaltrials.gov is hard to navigate. I will say that without a doubt. It's so hard to navigate, but it does provide some information that I find that is very, very helpful. Most cancer centers have their own website or their version of clinicaltrials.gov where you can put in your medical condition and a list of clinical trials will come up. With that said, there may not be a trial specific for you, However, it will point you to a navigator, a nurse navigator or research nurse. And we are literally your best friends when it comes to this because it may not be published on, um, I just included a screenshot here of um, the, uh, the Recruit Me, which is uh, our clinical trials uh, database. And so this is available for anyone. It's just recruitme.com and it will bring up all of our trials that we have for primary ocular melanoma as well as metastatic. And so this is the best database for us because it, even if you don't see anything, it'll link you to a nurse navigator and they will ask you all of your medical history. They'll ask you all the questions. And then that data then gets sent to a research nurse and an oncologist. And we will connect with you to, um, to schedule a visit for you to meet with one of our medical oncologists. And so this is super helpful. Like I said, clinicaltrials.gov is very hard to navigate. However, it does have helpful information such as inclusion and exclusion criteria. And I'll share a little bit about that in a minute. Um, well, and something else to keep in mind too, just for those of you listening, the Acure Insight website actually has a clinical trial finder that is linked to it that is a little easier to navigate than clinicaltrials.gov. It pulls the information directly from clinicaltrials.gov, but it does really kind of narrow the focus um, and it kind of puts things right in front of you again, um, just makes it a little easier to find and a little easier to sort through. I think the Recruit Me website sounds like a really good option, um, but like like you were saying, like there's benefits to all of them and just kind of looking through all of them because, I mean, I would imagine you never know what's going to fall through the cracks too in technology. Like something could be exactly. showing up on one and not on another and we want to make sure we catch all of them. Exactly. Perfectly said. Um, another resource is your medical oncologist. So connecting with a medical oncologist that is familiar with ocular melanoma. There are not many, but if you are um, in contact with one, they can let you know based upon recent data, they meetings that they're constantly attending to, tending to, um, they can let you know what is out there. And so if you have had a visit with a medical oncologist that specializes in ocular melanoma, then they're literally the first people that can tell you, okay, I know what's right for you because I know your disease, I know your history, I know all of this information, and this is what I would recommend for you. Um, 
And the last thing I would say is support groups so, such as this one. So this is a great way to be able to navigate, okay, what's out there and hearing it from other patients as well. So how do you know if a clinical trial is right for you? So every clinical trial has something that's called inclusion and exclusion criteria. So for me as a research nurse, if a nurse navigator recommends you for a clinical trial, I'm then looking at your history to say, okay, this is how large your, um, your primary tumor is. Um, this is a treatment that you've had. And so I'm going through all of this and I'm combing through all of this information. This information is also available on clinicaltrials.gov and it may be available on the site that you had just mentioned. And so this is basically like what we have to make sure that it's safe for us to give you this intervention. And so usually sometimes if it's something like blood work or a blood pressure or something, if you came into clinic and your blood pressure was 150 over 95 and the clinical trial says you, your blood pressure has to be less than 140 over 90, we're not going to immediately exclude you. There are things that we can do. We can send you, um, start you on antihypertensive. We can, you know, check again at home. Like there are certain things. I say that all to say, even if things are not um, perfect immediately upon your screening visit, there are things that we can do to be able to help um, get you on the clinical trial, especially if it's a promising study and you seem like a good fit for it otherwise. Um, another way to know if there's if clinical trials are right for you, is there a site near you? Is there a cancer center near your home? Um, maybe that it's not directly near your home. Maybe it's, um, you know, I work in New York. Maybe you live in Connecticut or Boston and you're trying to figure out a trial and if it's if um, if there's a site near you and it's only in New York, still I wouldn't rule that out because there are options. There are sometimes there are things that we can do locally near you at home. Doesn't necessarily require you to travel to the main center um, for all of your testing. And so I wouldn't necessarily rule out location immediately. I would just consider it um, that you know maybe there's something closer to you near home. If there's not, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, what are some questions to ask your medical oncologist? And so I love, love, love when patients come to clinic and they have a list of questions already. Because, you know, when you get into the visit, it's so easy to get frazzled. There's so much information being thrown at you. You leave and you're like, wait, I actually didn't get to ask anything that I wanted to. I'm actually leaving here more confused. And so having a list of questions, especially when a clinical trial is presented to you, reading the informed consent and having questions ready. And so some of the questions, are there any patients at your center that are currently on this clinical trial? Is there any published data that you can share with me about this clinical trial? What are the side effects that you've experienced? So one of the things that you'll notice about an informed consent, it will literally list every possible side effect that has ever occurred in with this particular treatment. Doesn't mean that it will happen to you, but it's just, they literally list everything from common to rare. And so in it, one of the questions I recommend is, okay, what have you personally seen in patients that you've treated on the study? And you know, how are these side effects managed? Um, in addition to data and asking um, about side effects is, you know, are there any stipends associated? So some trials do have stipends where it will pay you for traveling cost. And it's usually within like, um, if you're traveling more than 150 miles to the cancer center, they'll usually give you a reimbursement for some travel um, for hotel lodging. Sometimes they'll give you a reimbursement for that. It depends upon the type of study, the sponsor, all of those sort of factors. Um, but these are some questions to ask as well. Um, what are the schedule of assessments? So in the informed consent, it'll tell you when you have to be here at the cancer center or wherever for, um, for your visits. Some early phase studies do require biopsies. And so that's something that you would wanna know as well. So is there a biopsy that's required before I enroll in the study? Is there another biopsy required while I'm actually on the study? So these are things you wanna know um, and deciding maybe you're like, I actually don't wanna do another biopsy. Um, or maybe I cannot do another biopsy. And so these are things that you wanna be able to know of before enrolling on a study, as well as side effects like I just mentioned. Um, I don't know if you wanna chat about this now, but I just basically included a list of studies that I'm familiar with um, that are out there right now for primary ocular melanoma in the adjuvant setting and metastatic setting. 
Um, so if it's okay, I guess I'm thinking, um, is this from here on, is this kind of the majority of the rest of what you have? Okay. Yeah. So I'm thinking let's pause on the presentation for a minute and let's just kind of get some Q and a going. Um, I know yeah. I have some questions that we can run through that you didn't already oh, cover. And yeah. then we can bring Kelly in to answer some of these questions as well that she, um, has familiar background with. Um, so I'm trying to think like, so as a, as a patient is facing you know, the possibility of a clinical trial, let's just maybe start at someone who's been diagnosed with their eye and their eye has been treated, they're undergoing surveillance and they just want to have, uh, I guess, kind of an arsenal of like what's available to me should I need it. Obviously we would hope they would never need it. Um, and we would hope that if they do need it, it's years in the making. Um, but just because I know that as a patient myself, sometimes it helps to have that kind of action plan and know that should something change, there is a plan and that it is presently available to you. Um, what are, what are some of the ways that patients who don't currently have metastatic disease, um, could look into say adjuvant trials or, um, as well as, um, you know, potential, like this is what I would go for first, um, as far as just regular clinical trials go for, or go are concerned. I don't know who wants to take that. Um, Kelly, do you have any, any suggestions there? Yeah, I mean, yes, I can say that in clinical trials and they change often and especially in your early phase trials, you know, especially if we have an adjutant when it just comes out. The problem is there is the small capacity they would take in participants. So if someone needs that adjuvant trial right then, there might not be that availability. So we'd, we'd have to look at the time frame for them and give them those time frames so they could check back. I have a lot of patients who do that. They'll check back, hey, is this available yet? When you get in your later phase trials with the more, they have more slots, usually those are open, but as they get later and later, they start going into the phase of the FDA approval and they might not be available by the time they need them. So there'll be newer trials that'll come in play. And so then we'll have to re-talk about those uh, treatment plans again about other trial options. So that's- So I guess what I'm hearing is that it's kind of an evolving thing right. and that- it, it's helpful to be in the loop with people who can link you up with those things. Um, like right. say, like in my case, I was a phase or I was a class two melanoma, like in my eye. And so because I was a class two, there were certain adjuvant trials that were potentially available to me, but it, it took, you know, digging, it took research and it took mm -hmm. obviously going through all of the steps that you just went through, like consent and learning what was the protocol going to look like and, and how accessible to me was it going to be? Um, but with doing that, there was a certain time frame. like some of those adjuvant trials, if they are going to accept you, they have like a time frame of, you know, prior treatment to current, like mm -hmm. right. this is the, this is the window of time you have to even be included in the study. Um, so I guess just like you said, being, being in the know and just linking up with people who can help you kind of stay on track with checking in on those, that would be helpful as far as adjuvant trials are concerned. Um, what what difference is, a, I guess, just for definition purposes, what is the difference between just a normal clinical trial and an adjuvant clinical trial? You can, you can take that one if you want. I mean, either one of us can answer that. So um, adjuvant usually means that they're not metastatic yet. It's still locally uh, local disease. Um, they haven't had, they might've had like a surgery or um, just immediately diagnosed. It's like a, maybe a stage one, stage two. They're not metastatic yet. Like it's not somewhere else in the body, in the okay. organ. So. And, and is an adjuvant trial, um, so obviously it's, it's looking at trying to treat before metastatic disease, but right. the type of like medications or things that have used, like, is there, is there a pattern of use like that, you know, a drug can only become an adjuvant, um, an adjuvant trial drug. If it's been through all of the phases in previous clinical trial, like with metastatic disease, like, is there an order to things as far as. I don't know, like, like I know like VPA and Sugent has been used for an adjuvant clinical trial. Those are both FDA approved drugs. So like, like, is there just like, is there a, a way to determine when and how something can become an adjuvant trial, if that makes sense? Yeah, I can take it. Um, so usually with adjuvant studies, the whole goal is to prevent um, spread or reoccurrence. And so with that, adjuvant studies are usually very hard to, um, uh, to accrue, not really accrue to, but to open because like you said, they have to be established in the metastatic setting. They have to prove that they're effective there and then bringing them onto the adjuvant setting. And so we've had, you know, I've worked on studies such as like Krizatnib since like 2011, 
And so that wasn't a positive study. It was an adjuvant study, but basically it's very hard because you have to accrue a large number of participants, usually around 400 or so, and showing that it is effective to prevent reoccurrence within a certain time frame. And so usually the reason that there's not many adjuvant studies out there is just because um, cost-wise, they're, they're very costly um, to be able to, to start and accrue to, um, as well as they have to be able to show and prevent um, disease from, from reoccurring. And so um, right now, I, I don't know of many or any adjuvant studies that are out mm -hmm. there. Okay. Um, so then I think that's, that's basically the difference. I just wanted to make sure that we covered that. Um, we did have a question come in from the Q&A, and I will make note of you know checking in on this as well. But one of the questions was, is it possible to get a list of those questions that you recommended, um, kind of like as a, what do I ask my doctor prior to committing to the trial? Um, I think visual, um, that would help. So I'll just make sure to follow up with you and get a list of that that we can email out after this is uh, the webinar is finished. Uh, let's see. So when, I think you talked a little about this. Um, where is it? Do like, so do biopsies done? This kind of goes, there's like multiple questions in this, but um, do biopsies done like the castle testing, impact genetics, um, Keras life sciences, things that are done for the eye and or the liver, um, do those aid in determining that eligibility factor for trials? For me, it does on uh, many trials, uh, especially because we're doing targeted mutation therapies. Um, so if there's a certain mutation and we have that trial, we, they have to have that mutation and that molecular report in order to go in that trial. Okay. Or, or even if they need that fresh biopsy, they'll go and test it called a central lab, which is the trial sponsor who will test to make sure they have that mutation or if they're positive negative to be potentially eligible for the trial. Okay. Um, and this, this may be kind of a weird question. Um, but for someone who say had a spot of metastatic disease that's been treated or, you know, multiple spots and is now, um, it wasn't treated with like a clinical trial, like just treated locally, maybe it was resected or there was some liver directed therapy that was done for that kind of small localized area. Um, are there, I guess, are there, are there ways to determine what trials that would exclude them from? Like, um, okay. So that's, that's just a general question. Like there's, there's going to be limitations, even if you've had that I'm, kind of a treatment. I'm sorry. I'm at <laughs> it's home. Okay. My dog just scared me even. She never does <laughs> you that. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. It's like, there's more people. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just asking those questions and like, that's part of the prior history. I'm sure like intake that somebody like you guys would go through a patient with and say, okay, like what's happened since your metastatic diagnosis, um, what's been done, what's not been done, things like that. Um, Okay, so then are there any other kinds of prior testing that patients should have done, like really prior to exploring any clinical trials? Like, are there any standard of care um, treatments that can be determined through like blood tests, biopsies, like things like that, that we can narrow down the focus just so that we have, like, if have a standard of care, you know, if there is one available? Yeah, um, I actually really quickly just want to speak to the prior point about you know, metastatic disease and having it treated and then thinking about clinical trials after. Um, so many, many um, trials for metastatic setting, they require you to have measurable disease mm -hmm. or evaluable disease in order to follow you. And so usually it's at least one centimeter um, for a lesion or um, uh, 15 millimeters uh, for a lymph node. And so basically that is how we are able to determine if the treatment is effective or not because we have something to follow. And so if um, if you've had metastatic disease that has been treated and you're considered NED, which is no evidence of disease, um, for many clinical trials in the metastatic setting, you may not qualify because there's something that you would need to follow. Yeah, gotcha. um, so, so it doesn't count that they can just measure if something comes back. <laughs> like, yeah, like, I guess yeah. it would in, in my head, I'm like, oh, but like, if nothing ever shows up, doesn't that mean the trial worked? Like if you had no evidence of disease and then you continue to have no evidence, but I, like, I understand the need for like that measurable disease to track something. 
Yeah. And that, and that's at baseline. That's like before right. you start the study, that's like part of the inclusion criteria when you're mm-hmm. actually on the study. And if you have no evidence of disease, that is fantastic because yes, mm-hmm. that has shown that the treatment has worked and we love things that we don't have to follow, <laughs> you know, to show that oh, yeah. it's worked. But beforehand you do need something um, yeah, as baseline. Okay. So um, you talked briefly about like placebos. Um, how do you know if you're going to receive a placebo or not, or have the possibility of getting like a placebo drug? Um, is there a certain phase? Like, I think, was it phase three? You said, is that, that most likely happens. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so then I guess there's the placebo. And then you said, there's also the comparative standard of care where they're, they're going to be giving you something that is used as standard of care for uveal melanoma. Um, do you, are you given informed consent around that? Like how do, how do they go about determining that? Um, usually what they'll do on any consent, they'll show you it's a randomized trial. Um, okay. Usually what they'll do is the standard care, like placebo might get the, you know, study drug might not, and then randomized to the actual study drug. And usually they're called blinded, uh, meaning that um, we don't know as caregivers giving you that drug, whether you're getting the real drug or not. But the consents will have to state in it that, you you know, it'll be, it's randomized slash placebo. Um, okay. So they have to let you know that. So that's part of the consent is that they will tell you this mm-hmm. is a randomized trial. And so if you don't want that possibility and you want the 100%, I'm going to get a drug, then you want to check off and say like, I'll save right. this for later if you don't want that randomized possibility. Correct. Yes. Um, is is there a time that that a randomized trial can be more beneficial like for a patient who maybe this is their first clinical trial? Like I know there's some clinical trials that you have to have like zero prior, you know, zero prior clinical trials before you do this one. And so like, you know, if it's in phase three and it's the only opportunity because it's your first time being able to do it, like, is that kind of weighing the risk, I guess the the cost and the risks to that? Um, How, I mean, is there, is there like a method you guys use for kind of helping a patient determine whether or not to move forward with something like that? Yeah. Yeah. I can take that. Yeah. Um, so it it depends. So for instance, in the ChemTrack study, um, the registration trial it was ChemTrack versus Investigator's Choice, and that mm-hmm. Investigator's Choice was um, different types of immunotherapy. Maybe chemotherapy was, was one of them, maybe not. Um, but in that, usually with randomized studies, there is um, sometimes, not always, a two to one, meaning like you are um, twice as likely to be randomized to the investigational in that study was ChemTrack versus the standard of care. So your odds of getting the actual investigational treatment are sometimes a little bit higher. It's not with all studies. And some studies are built in with crossover, meaning if you are randomized to the investigator's choice, if you're randomized to placebo or what have you, then the option to cross over to the investigational arm, then they allow that should you progress on the investigational one. Um, And in it, like nothing is binding. So let's say you sign a consent form for a clinical trial. It's a randomized study. There is placebo involved. You're randomized. And if it's not a blinded study and they tell you, okay, you were randomized to the standard of care and you choose not to participate, that is always your choice. And even if you're randomized to the investigational and you choose not to participate, it is always your choice. It is um, completely your decision. And so um, no one can say, oh, you have to participate because this is how the trial works. It actually doesn't. It's completely your choice. And so I always share that with patients early on when they're consenting, especially for randomized studies and if it's placebo controlled. Yeah. We always oh. let them know that it's voluntary. Um, you yeah, can step out anytime. Yeah. It's so important. And that was actually a question that just barely came in was, um, are you able to leave a clinical trial? And it's like, yes, you absolutely yeah. can. Um, whether you've signed the papers or not, like you get to have that prerogative to leave at any time for any reason. It doesn't, right. you don't, you don't even, I mean, you don't have to have a reason. Like you can just be like, I'm done. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. Correct. Um, and I think that just, just recognizing that as a patient that like, we have the power to choose in this situation because it is a volunteer study is super, super important because I think that, um, I think patients sometimes can feel like, you know, they've been maybe guided to this trial through their doctors and nurses. And they're like, well, I'm supposed to do this. I need to do something. But if for whatever reason, it's just not a good fit, um, there can be, I think, a level of maybe guilt or shame associated with backing out. Um, how do you help patients navigate that? Like, do you, do you guys have anything that you kind of, I mean, do you, do you typically have like a list of things that you're going to move to next? If you have, um, someone back out of a trial? Yes. 
Yeah, that our oncologists I know always have what we call Plan B. Um, if uh -huh. things, you know, especially if toxicities of the trials are not able to tolerate things like that, we look at other options and we weigh all those options out along with the trial at that time, saying if this doesn't work out, we at least have this treatment option for you. Um, so we always do have those discussions about all the treatment options available along with the tr treatment trial if they decide to pursue the treatment trial. Um, so that's how we do it here. So um, what I was going to ask, I think I started to ask this earlier and then I got sidetracked, but um, I know we're like with Kimtrak, that's our, that's our first FDA approved uveal melanoma drug. We know that it is only effective in certain populations um, with like the HLA 0201 blood typing. So as far as prior testing goes, do you guys, you know, as patients are investigating clinical trials, would you suggest that one of those questions that a patient go through with their oncologist is, you know, do I have this blood test and has it been done? If it hasn't, then I need to do it before I'm presented with trials, because that is obviously like a good frontline option, you know, in certain situations. Um, do you, do you guys think that that, you know, I agree, I guess that that should be the standard of like pattern for investigating a trial is that that blood test should always be done to check that first. Yes, yes absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I encourage um, it. Yeah, same. And even like with gene expression profiling, HLA testing, all of those things are super helpful to have. Um, even, you know, if God forbid it, it does metastasize when you're um, in the primary stage, you already know, okay, I'm HLA 0201 positive. I know this already. I know um, uh, any sort of mutations I have. And so all of that information is super helpful mm -hmm. if, like I said, God forbid it should metastasize. Okay. I feel like that's good. Like just again, like being armed with information, like mm -hmm. is really, really important when you're learning and kind of choosing what you're going to do. Um, this question from Amy says, how many different centers can you register with, or do you suggest registering with? So I think that this might also kind of play a role in like, in just kind of trying to find trials and maybe potentially finding a nurse navigator? Um, like, is there a limit to how many centers you can get in touch with who you know are familiar with um, uveal melanoma? Okay. So I'm seeing um, Shahina is saying there's no limit. Like you yeah, can, there's no you, limit. <laughs> you could contact 20 of them if you wanted right. or 50 or however many you can find. Um, yeah. I mean, honestly, you just have to do what's best for you in the, in the terms of like, okay, what can I realistically do what do I have time to do to handle because it is very time consuming to reaching mm -hmm. out to all of these different centers I would recommend one doing one closest to you near home um, off that, yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah and then one if the place near you at home does not have a medical oncologist that specializes in ocular melanoma then registering with a center that does that's also closest near you to home and then three um, a major cancer center in, in the country. And so registering with them and, you know, all of these centers, usually most of them have wait lists. And so if there is a clinical mm -hmm. trial and, you know, it, maybe it's not immediately available or maybe you don't immediately qualify, um, still we have you in our database so that we can reach out to you or vice versa if it should become available. Um, so I have two questions. And so I'm going to, I'm going to write down one of them because I don't want to forget um, what is... And I was going to stem off Shanana's there too, as well, with the multiple sites. All sites have different trial options. So I might not have the trial option. And she might have the trial option. So that's another thing. If there's one particular one you're looking at, definitely, you know, contact that center because um, we all have different, usually have a, a slew of different trials, but we all do share trials as well. Someone else, another site might have this slot available where I might not. So definitely mm -hmm. check those two as well when you're, you're looking at other site options. So you guys mentioned registering for like registering at a cancer center. Um, what does registering entail? Like as far as, you know, how does, how does that process look? Does that involve the patient has to travel to that center? Um, you know, kind of, I guess, what is, what does it look like to get put on the list? 
Um, I'll take that one for us. Um, for our processes, yes, we will ask for records to be sent to us and then we review those records. We call it like a pre-screening. We go through your records to make sure there's, we call like red flags that possibly for the standard criteria that would exclude you from the trials, what your treatment history looks like, um, where you're at right now as far as your scans, um, looking um, at your, like I said, again, those gene mutations. So we go through that. Um, then we would like you to come for an initial consult with us. Yes, you would travel to see us, um, maybe to our closest site, if there's trials available there. Um, but if you're a potential, we have you come an established patient, as we call it, um, as an uh, so you'll be on our list for those trials that have come available. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and then to to stay an established patient, like, do you guys keep patients informed of like the? I know some patients, you know, for out of state, like I know like. Thomas Jefferson, to stay an established patient, you have to travel like a minimum of one time a year to that place, even if you're not in a current trial or treatment. Um, Usually we're six months um, as established patient, um, but we do have an enrollment team after they come through our referral team who have them on their list. And then they okay. are the ones who stay in contact with the patients after that, or they can contact back me as well. And then usually after that six months period, we'll just ask for updated records to see where they are at that time. Okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, Shahinas, do you guys have any other kind of differences or nuances to that process? No, it's pretty much the same. We we have a nurse navigator um, that handles all of our clinical trials. And so similar, they'll um, ask the patient to fill out a form so we can get records. Um, and also, you know, uh, uh, setting up a visit with one of our medical oncologists to be able to get the history, to discuss trials available. Should there be something immediately available that you need to send? You know, that's usually like a faster process that we can do, but if it's not, um, you know, we give you our, you know, contact information, um, as well as, you know, we have a list of things available for you, maybe in the future, uh, and we reach out to patients if that, if it's needed. Um, but usually in that case, um, you know, if you are just exploring studies and it's not something that you need immediately and you do have a local medical oncologist, I always recommend, you know, should you need it, like if you, you know, had a visit, for example, at Columbia and you have a local oncologist in Colorado, um, reaching out to that cancer center such as Columbia um, for a clinical trial if you need it, because it's, sometimes it's hard to, you know, what your status is if it's, you know, constantly changing and evolving. And so I always recommend patients getting our contact information, the research nurse and nurse navigator, um, and reaching out to us directly if they need. Okay. I feel like that makes sense. And that's, that's just helpful. Like just as far as what does that process look like? Um, cause I, in my head, I'm like, okay, like, well, if I'm going to register at a trial center, like that just means I'm going to make a phone call and I'm going to ask to be put on a list, but it's a little more in depth than that. Cause you guys need, you need kind of the baseline of information for the patient to be able to consider them on that list of trials. Um, so you mentioned having a medical oncologist and specifically having a medical oncologist, if possible, who's familiar with uveal melanoma, which is the specific disease that we deal with. Um, what happens if you have a patient who has a medical oncologist who maybe they primarily treat skin cancer, they're not familiar with um, uveal or very specific types of melanoma, and they are dealing with, okay, their patient has metastatic disease and the patient is being told and recommended no clinical trials, but they're being recommended a drug combo that's used in cutaneous melanoma or other cancers. Um, how would you propose that a patient presented with that option, uh, I guess, kind of call into question that practice? Um, because obviously they need a doctor and they need to find a doctor close by if at all possible. Um, but what's, what's maybe a, a helpful or tactful way to go about questioning that, that process and, and why should that be questioned? You can take that one if you want. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, it's honestly a great yeah. question and it's probably the norm, right? Because the number of oncologists that specialize in uveal melanoma is so limited and rare. And so because of that, um, it's almost like you have to be your best advocate. And so, you know, if you are, in an, at a cancer center with a medical oncologist that specializes in melanoma, skin melanoma, but not uveal or other types of ocular melanoma, then, you know, um, using, like I said, um, leveraging support groups such as this one. And so understanding that there are more options out there than just combo immunotherapy, for instance, right? And so um, 
learning and keeping up to date with what's out there and then presenting that as an option um, to your oncologist or scheduling. Sometimes um, some of our providers do telehealth visits depending upon the state that you live in and if they're licensed in that state, sometimes we can do telehealth visits. So to prevent you traveling to um, a cancer center that's, that's not in your state. Um, but I would suggest having more than one opinion. And so a second opinion, a third opinion, especially for this type of disease is so, so, so important. Um, especially if you don't have an oncologist that specializes in it. And so, okay, if that's the treatment option and you need to start it pretty soon, which usually is the case, then saying, okay, I'm going to reach out to these different centers and get information about what's available, or I'm going to reach out to my support groups and see what they have and then bring that information back to my medical oncologist. Um, sorry, I was just checking a couple things, but um, I feel like that's that's really helpful. Like because that's that's one of the hardest things I think for us on the advocacy side is, side is seeing patients who are kind of just through sheer unavailability of knowledge or just not knowing where to access the information, um, they're ending up in treatment centers for cutaneous melanoma. And it's not working or it's working very poorly and they kind of are at risk of even potentially, you know, not being able to do certain trials because of previous treatment history, things like that. And so just trying to make sure that that line of communication is open. And like you said, just emphasizing that second opinion is so, so important, especially if you're seeing someone who is not considered an expert in your area of disease. Um, so just I guess if you're listening and you are here, like tell a friend, <laughs> tell a friend, get a second opinion, consider telehealth, like look for uveal melanoma medical oncologists wherever possible. There are few, but there are a good number of them out there kind of scattered around the country. And so just finding one of those and getting in touch with them will really, will really be very helpful. Um, what, um, like you mentioned the big long list in the informed consent of side effects. <laughs> so what role, um, do side effects typically play in your experience? Do those side effects play in doing a trial to begin with and in continuing a trial? Um, like, are there are there certain levels of those side effects maybe that will, they'll, you know, somebody would tell the, the person in the trial, like, okay, you can no longer do this. It's too dangerous for you. Um, I guess kind of like, what are, what are some of those signs or indications like physically that patients need to be aware of? Do you want uh, to take it, Kelly? Yeah, you can take it. Yeah. I was explaining it probably better than I would be. <laughs> oh, it's okay. So usually part of the inclusion exclusion is, you know, sometimes certain medical history is excluded, such as in immunotherapy trials. Um, if you have a history of certain autoimmune diseases, um, you know, it wouldn't be safe for us to give you a clinical trial with a treatment that could potentially exacerbate that or make it worse. And so, you know, part of the intake is, okay, what other medical history do you have outside of this disease? And, you know, when you look at studies, most of them do have side effects. And so, you know, asking yourself, can I, is this even feasible for me to do? Can I, can I realistically handle it? If, if the GI side effects, such as like nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea are very common and work full time, you know, chatting with your um, medical oncologist, chatting with your research nurse and team to say, okay, how was how this managed? How have you seen this, you know, with other patients that are on the study? Have they been able to live fruitful lives while being on the study? And so just being completely transparent with what you have on your plate, what, what, what your ex expectations are, and then being able to, to have a conversation about that. Most of these studies do have side effects, such as Kimtrak. Um, you know, the first couple of doses are administered in the hospital because of the side effects associated. But usually after that, it's pretty well tolerated. And so understanding that, you know, also as you're on studies, maybe the beginning is a little bit harder to do. And, you know, once you're over a certain hump, you, you get to a place where, you know, your body gets more adjusted to it, you get more adjusted to the schedule or just um, medications to help manage those side effects, you're, you get to, to a better area. And so I usually say, depending upon what the side effect is, you know, really trying to stick it out um, and, and use the medications recommended to help manage certain side effects and if it's feasible for you. Okay. That makes sense. Um, what does a patient do if there's no clinical trials that they qualify for currently because they're just not recruiting at the time? Um, I think I know we mentioned kind of being on the list of centers. So like, is there a benefit to being on the wait list and can you be on more than one wait list? 
Yeah, absolutely. You can be on as many as you want. Um, it's just whatever, you know, comes available. And then you like back what we talked about, talk with your local mental oncologist and ask them, you know, discuss those trials and look at the way the benefits of them. Um, sometimes on the later trials, I have data out there that talks about the, how they uh, respond, how they're effective. So, you know, it's, it's kind of your oncologist and you doing the research too as well, asking those centers what they're seeing in their clinics as far as response, you know, on the trials. Those things, uh, those are the questions you need to ask when you're looking at it. So you could see what best benefits. And then too, we look at what treatments have you had already um, would be your next line. Okay. Um, and then this is kind of, I guess, somewhat related, but if you have registered with a doctor and that doctor leaves their, their practice, they move to a different practice. Uh, do they keep that list or does that stay with the Institute? Like say Columbia medical center, um, or Sarah Canna research Institute. They, um, usually stay with the Institute. Okay. So if you wanted it to follow your doctor, you would need to then register at the center that your doctor has moved to. Correct. Um, let's see. So can some trials be administered at the patient's local hospital under the care of a local doctor? I'm going to guess that that just kind of depends on the trial and depends on what is needed to administer locally versus in person. But, um, Shahana, um do you want to answer that ahead. one? You go ahead. Yeah. Um, nine times out of 10, um, the treatment cannot be in, um, administered locally. It's because, um, they do not hold the IRB at that local institution. So um, with clinical trials, it's experimental treatment, right? And so um, it has to be administered by someone who's on what's called the 1572. So it's an investigator that has pretty much been trained. They're aware of how to manage the side effects. They're aware how to administer the treatment. And so because of that, it's usually tied to an institution and a particular investigator team. Okay, great. Um, okay. I think that covers the majority of the questions. Johannes, do you want to move back over to your slides so we can kind of run through the available trials um, for uveal melanoma or the current ones? And of course, as you guys live, or your, if you have any other questions, like please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, and just so that we can clarify, primary OM, that means the tumor is only in your eye still. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So this is the single, and I, I'm familiar with this one with um, Aura Biosciences, correct? Exactly. Yeah. And so this is a trial that like, I'll, I'm going to share some studies, but this is solely, you know, what, what I know of, this isn't a complete exhaustive list. And so um, Kelly, if you have anything at Sarah Cannon that you wanted to, to add to this, please feel free. But this is a trial um, for primary. So you've just been diagnosed, you went to an ophthalmologist, a retina specialist, what have you, and they found a tumor in your eye before they do a nucleation, before they do um, plaque brachytherapy or anything else, this is what the primary treatment would be. And, and it's light therapy. It's a clinical trial that we've had um, for a couple of years at Columbia. So this is adjuvant trials for ocular melanoma. So the, this is after you've had your primary treatment. So the treatments that I just mentioned and adjuvant setting to prevent recurrence. Unfortunately, I don't think any of these studies are currently recruiting. This is what I know that I've personally worked on over the past several years. Um, sometimes depending upon your case, if you're class two high risk, um, that's part of the gene profiling that's done. Um, with your primary treatment, if you're found to be class two high risk, castle testing, then sometimes, sometimes not as much anymore, but your oncologist can work with your insurance to get a med medication called Sutent approved. Um, and it's a case by case basis. We don't recommend it for everyone, but if you fall into this certain category and you're the type of person that is not comfortable with surveillance observation, meaning just you know, doing scans at particular frequencies and you feel like you want to do something, then that's a conversation to have with a medical oncologist. And potentially they could um, could send or work with your insurance to get SUTENT approved. Um, and that's based upon a study that was done at Jefferson. Uh, clinical trials for the metastatic setting. Again, this is not a complete list. This is just what I know um, that is currently available. And so I'm not going to list everything out. Um, but these are trials, um, and they have certain criteria. For instance, one of them, the IDEA study is a frontline study, meaning like you cannot have had other previous treatments in the metastatic setting. 
And so the reason why, again, we emphasize why it's so important to get second and third opinions, especially with a medical oncologist that is familiar with this disease is, you know, if you went to a local oncologist and they're like, hey, I want to do combo immunotherapy, then that would rule out the chance that you could qualify for this IDEA study. And that is just an example. There are other studies here that um, allow second and third line treatments, um, but that is just an example. Some of these are liver-directed treatments, such as the Trisalis SD-101 study. This is a liver-directed treatment, and it does have immunotherapy in combination with that. And so, um, you know, working with, you know, different cancer centers, your cancer center, clinicaltrials.gov, RecruitMe, other um, CureOM, to see what other options are out there. And like I said, there are some sites that have inclusion exclusion where you could brief briefly look at it and uh, just scan it to see if you would even potentially qualify for it. Um, what's involved in a clinical trial? So like I mentioned before, there's a consent form. And so this is you know, going over what the treatment is, um, how often you have to be there, uh, side effects, cost, all of those sort of things. Usually we can do consent and a baseline visit in the same day. And then you have to do what's called screening procedures. And that is done to make sure it's safe for us to give you this treatment. And so regardless if this is for primary or metastatic, all interventional clinical trials have screening assessments. And so it's usually blood work, maybe eye exams, EKGs, echoes, um, scans, like it's a host of different things depending upon the trial. And then when you're actually on treatment, you have to come a certain time to do blood work. Um, if it's a pill study, usually the pills are dispensed at that particular cancer center. Um, treatment is administered at that cancer center. Imaging at different time points, depending on the study. Manage, managing side effects when you're on and after. And then should you choose to withdraw consent, if the treatment is no longer working for you, if the side effects are not tolerable, then usually with clinical, clinical trials, we still follow you for a certain time period um, just to make sure you know we're in the loop if you develop any late side effects um, and just to be able to check in with you. Overall, just to wrap this up, my recommendations are for you to connect with a medical oncologist that is up to date on current ocular melanoma clinical trials. I cannot overemphasize this. It is very, very important. Also keeping a personal record. So you know, having your own record of, okay, when were you diagnosed? What was the size of your primary tumor at diagnosis? What, what is the treatment that you received? Um, how, when was your last scan? What was, like, just having an idea of this sort of information. If you are, um, if you've received treatment in the metastatic setting, what treatments have you received? What was the response, the side effects to those treatments? Having that information and keeping a record in real time is so, so important because you are your best advocate, right? So you're coming to these visits, especially if you're doing second and third opinions, all of this information is needed at that time. Um, and then the last two we've talked about, so connecting with a nurse navigator or research nurse to inquire about specific studies and leveraging support groups such as this one to find out information on new trials. I feel like this has been definitely super helpful. Um, thank you both for being here. Uh, I do have just a couple other questions that have come in. One from the Q&A is, do clinical trials in the United States um, accept patients from, say, Canada or other countries in their clinical trials? And if so, like, what are kind of the, what's the process look like for someone out of the country versus not? I mean, I could take that one because um, yeah, I could, and that question a lot. Uh, we, we will take, you know, other patients from other countries and uh, Canada as well. How are the difficulties there? Is it comes to call to self-pay uh, as far as standard of care portions of it, which would be the imaging, because we don't have that capacity here to be able to build their insurance, all the country insurance. Um, so that's the things we run into there. Um, also, our oncologists like you, especially if you're going to be on a clinical trial, to be in the States at least for two or three months, just to check, make sure, you know, not have any major side effects and those can be managed. And then, um, so those are the kind of things we had to look at, um, but we do welcome. Okay. Um, Johannes, do you have anything to add there? 
That's perfect. That's exactly okay, what perfect. I was going to say. <laughs> um, as far as like just the financial goes, I know we've talked about stipends. We've talked about travel aid, um, that most clinical trials have that if there, I mean, I know, I just know for a fact, there are some trials that don't have that, um, or some, you know, treatments that are considered trials that don't have financial aid for traveling. Do you guys know of, or suggest to patients that they, you know, link up with other resources that can help with the travel, um, and do you have a list of those that you would just, you know, off the top of your head, you can think of? Um, I know there's patient advocacy groups like Ocular Melanoma uh, Foundation, Acure Insight, CureOM on some level, but are there other, like, just because I know we have a small cancer, but like, are there other cancer aid avenues that patients can go through for help in getting places? Uh, yeah, even at our site, we have uh, called financial counselors who also help with those what we call uh, financial help assistance when they need that. So they have also a slew of resources that could help them guide them through that process. Yeah. So the benefit of being with a center, like talking right. to someone like yourself, linking up with the resources that you guys have at the center, um, super invaluable because I, I think that, you know, patients, it, it does patients a disservice if they just think, oh, well, I just can't afford to do that. So I just right. can't do anything. Um, no, just making always, sure they know resource, there's options. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Right. Super there's important. also um, Angel Flight Network. That's yes, a, that's um, new. A, yeah, it's a company that I've worked with before that will fly cancer patients for free to mm -hmm. treatments. And, you know, I've had a patient on trial for years and she comes from Florida to New York every month and has been able to use that. And so, like I said, I wouldn't rule out studies if they're not directly in your state or territory um, because there are, you know, you know, companies like that that may fly you for free. Um, and that's not the only company. There is another company out there that has something similar. And we always team our patients up with social work um, to be able to, you know, provide other options such as lodging, like Hope Lodge is another one that we have in New York City that, you know, will um, lodge patients for free if they're there in New York for treatment for an extended period of time. Okay. Yeah. So there's, there's options and it's yeah. important to, to explore those options, not just write it off because you think there are no options. Um, and then I think just maybe to end on, we've got all these different trials. Um, obviously they're going to be recruiting at different times and you need to be working with someone who is in the know on what's available and when to you, should you need it. Uh, it can be helpful to, I'm just kind of summarizing, but it can be helpful to have like a running list of what you think you'd want to do, but just keep in mind that, you know, if you don't go metastatic for five years, that list is going to change. And that, that list of studies, what's available to you is going to change based on whatever's available in that present time. Um, not going to hurt to have that information and just kind of be armed with it, but just to know that it, it does evolve and change, um, doesn't ever feel quickly enough for us as patients, as far as getting somewhere like with treatments that work, but it does happen um, rather rapidly. So that said, is there a level of compassionate use for different drugs? And at what stage in a clinical trial is compassionate use allowed? I guess, if that makes sense. And I guess if you want to define one of you, define what is compassionate use to begin with. Um, yeah, I can make it. And so usually in later stage studies, um, compassionate use is allowed. And it's basically your own personal clinical trial where the company, the FDA, and the institution has allowed you to enroll on a study that shows promising results. And so in it, um, there's, you know, on the back end, there's like a ton of paperwork in order to get it approved. But if it does work, it's great because it allows you to be able to receive access to a medication um, that you wouldn't otherwise because either, you know, the trial has met its target accrual, it's no longer available, um, it's maybe not available at your institution. And so, like I said, usually later phase studies, um, compassionate use could be an option for you. Okay. So compassionate use later phase studies, would that be like phase two and on or phase three and on? Uh, it depends on the, kind of on the study okay. and like the results, if they're very close to FDA approval. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and I, I guess I'm hearing too, like across the board with other, like other pharmaceutical companies that if a company is close to FDA approval, then that compassionate use becomes a lot more possible. Um, just because they already know it works. It's just a matter of getting all their ducks in a row to say like, here's your stamp, <laughs> here's your stamp of approval. Um, I think I had one other question that I had, was thinking of when you were talking about out of country insurance. Um, is that something that is standard, like in doing a clinical trial in the States, do 
the doctors administering that trial like have room to bill insurance and how, like how do patients ensure that they're getting you know I guess the most out of their benefits if that makes sense. Um, I know for our doctors, like I said, our, we're not able to bill uh, for the insurance uh, just because of diff different regular regulations. I can't get it out. Regulations. I didn't want to say regulatory regulations. Um, so that's the problem there. Um, as far as the benefit, if we mark them as like we call it, quote unquote, self-pay, we go back to those financial assistance, those programs that help them. So they're making sure they're getting what are needed. We also try to look at trials too to make sure they're not getting any of the standard care. They're actually getting the drug that's getting paid for through the pharmaceutical company. So okay. they're not trying to, we try to, you know, keep the cost down as much as possible. That makes sense. Makes sense. Um, okay. Well, I'm not seeing any other questions from our Q&A, and I feel like this has been a pretty good kind of clinical trials 101 discussion. Um, thank you both for your time. And for anyone who's listening to the recording, if you have questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, and I am happy to forward those on to um, to either of these wonderful ladies. Um, and then Shahina, as um, you mentioned, the doctor questions, like just that kind of basic list of questions, she's going to send that over to me. And I guess if you don't mind sending me your slides as well, then I will um, include a few screenshots from those slides and we'll make sure to send a follow-up email after this webinar is all completed and uploaded um, just so that everyone can access some of that information. Yeah, that sounds good. This is super important and yes. I completely admire you for doing this. It's in, it's so important to get this information out so that patients you know, have a place, a central place where they can go to get this. And so thank you. Thank you for this time. Yeah. Thank That's you great. both again for your time today. We will we have you back another time, but um, I'll keep you in the loop if I get any questions from our audience and I'll let you guys get back to your day. Thanks everybody for joining. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.